June 6, 1992. Copa Airlines Flight 201, a Boeing 737 with 47 people on board, is operating the quick hour-long flight between Panama City, Panama and Cali, Colombia. Due to storms along the normal route, the pilots are having to plot a new course east before turning south towards Cali. 29 minutes into the flight, while cruising at 25,000 feet, the plane disappears from radar. Witnesses on the ground reported seeing a big ball of fire falling from the sky, and the wreckage falls into one of the most remote jungles on the planet. Rescuers have to traverse dense vegetation on foot before discovering the wreckage that was spread out over 100 square miles. With no survivors, Copa Airlines Flight 201 becomes the deadliest accident in Panamanian aviation history and the only fatal crash in the history of the airline. Was the weather severe enough to bring the aircraft down? Did they collide with drug runners flying under the cover of night? Could there have been a bomb on board that caused the fiery wreckage witnesses claim to have seen falling from the sky? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi, Gus. Uh, holy moly. That was a lot of tease. There's a drug, lot of information. Drug people. <laughs> so we'll really get into it in a bit. But, you know, this is a part of the world where sometimes planes are known to fly with the Secretly. lights off, right, mm -hmm. without contacting anybody with no transponder and to kind of fly silently to evade detection. Mm. Initially, that was a possible working theory that had to be investigated for this accident. Wow. I guess like any episode we cover, like any accident we cover, there's a lot of things that did not cause this accident <laughs> that also have to be narrowed down, right? It's like when they start the investigation, like, okay, there's any possible <laughs> list of things that could have done this. Let's start, you know, narrowing it down. And that's, yeah. that's one of them in this case. Of course, before we get into it, I want to give everyone a reminder, give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod, Facebook, Boom. Instagram, Twitter. We'll post images. I don't know of any off the top of my head. Maybe we'll come up with some that we can post while we're, yeah. while we're talking about this, this accident. I don't want to undersell how remote the jungle was where this aircraft debris came down. Yeah. I know I kind of mentioned it in passing in the intro. It's one of the most remote jungles in the world where the wreckage was. And one of the accident investigators, I saw an interview with him about this, this crash. He said on the first day alone of the investigation, there were eight snake bites. Three people oh. had broken legs. Or said there were three broken legs and one cardiac arrest. Oh my God. What? Someone had a yeah. heart attack maybe because of the snake bite or I don't, I think it was just like the exertion from, you know, having to go through such a, a difficult to reach area. Oh my God. More people are going to die trying to get to them than died on the plane. <laughs> So they're definitely, people are definitely getting hurt or actually people got hurt trying to get to the wreckage and over a hundred square mile. That's a, that's a big area. You know, that's roughly 10 miles by 10 miles would, would give you a hundred square miles of space that you have to, to look for uh, wreckage. That's wild. The plane was a 12 year old plane, not super old, but not like brand new, you know, 12 years is, I guess, newish in aviation terms. You know, you have a 12 year old car, you're like, yeah, it's kind of old. You have a 12 year old plane. It's like, yeah, it's still fine. It was a 12 year old Boeing 737 200. Uh, you know, servicing mm -hmm. Copa Airlines Flight 201. It was captained by Rafael Carlos Chial, who was 53 years old, had 23,750 flight hours, of which se about 7,000 were in a Boeing 737. So very seasoned, very experienced pilot or captain. Mm -hmm. The first officer was uh, Cesario Tejada, who was 25 years old with 3,450 flight hours, of which 1,600 hours were on the Boeing 737. So not... As experienced, but still, that's that's plenty of time. That's not like a brand new pilot by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. So Copa Airlines is the flag carrier of Panama. I've never flown a Copa Airlines. I, I'm going to guess you probably haven't either, Chris. I have not. 
<laughs> I've never been to Panama. I'd like to visit sometime. I've never been even like the first, I think the furthest south I've been is uh, Nicaragua. That's further than me. I think the furthest. Yeah. At least in America. Yeah. North the furthest south, south I've been in on this part of the world is like Cancun. <laughs> 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 so not quite as far. So, you know, Copa Airlines, flag carrier Panama, they've been operating since 1947. They're headquartered in Panama City. And just a side note, because this kind of ties mm-hmm. into another incident we covered a long time ago. In 1992, Copa Airlines signed a strategic alliance with Taka Airlines, and mm-hmm. the airline began flying from Tocumen International Airport, which is the airport in Panama City, making it the first flight connection center in Latin America. Taka Airlines, they we covered an accident or an incident involving Taka Airlines. It was the pilot yeah. who uh, had lost an eye in the war, and he only had one eye, and both of his... Engines flamed out and he had to land on a levee and everyone, everyone survived. It was down in uh, Louisiana. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a long time ago. That was like in season two of Black Box Down, yeah, maybe. That was like the 14th episode or something. Somewhere around there. Yeah, that's one of, that's one of my favorites. Anyway, I, I only bring it up because, you know, Taka Airlines had this alliance with Copa Airlines, which we're talking about now. Anyway, Copa Airlines 201. I was operating a nonstop passenger flight from Tocoman International Airport in Panama to Cali, Colombia. And they departed from runway 21 left at 136 Universal Time. So 21 left means they're kind of slow, sort of southwest in like a south-southwest direction. After takeoff, the crew made initial contact with Central Panama at 137 and requested a heading of 120 degrees in order to circle a large area of bad weather located in the Gulf of Panama. Shortly thereafter, the crew requested a deviation to the left of 090 degrees, and the controller approved the request. So they kind of started out southwest. Then when they make the turn to 120, they're kind of heading southeast. Then they go further left to 090, so they're going straight east at this point. That's not the right dr- They're just doing that to avoid the weather. Right. Yeah, there's bad weather at the time, so they're kind of trying to vector around it all in order to get clear of it to then turn straight south down to Cali. Because normally what they would do from there, it's just a pretty mm-hmm. straight shot southeast from Panama City to Cali. So if they're, you know, they're flying east to kind of get around the weather, and then they're probably going to head straight south. Kind of like, if you imagine the triangle, they were going to fly on the hypotenuse, but there were storms there. So they're flying on the other legs of the triangle to get to Cali, or that's the plan anyway. They requested an altitude of flight level 270. However, they could not get that altitude because there was another southeast bound aircraft at that time. So the, the controller offered them either flight level 250 or 290. So remember, they're flying east, so they need to be at an odd thousand altitude. They requested 27. It's not available, so they can take 25 or 29. And we talked about that in one of our previous episodes. When they're flying east, you fly at an odd thousand. If you're flying west, you fly at an even thousand. So since 270 wasn't available, they went ahead and selected flight level 250. At around... Two o'clock universal time, so that's about 24 minutes after takeoff, the flight experienced a loss of control, which resulted in in-flight structural failure, and it crashed into the jungle about 100 nautical miles southeast of Panama City. All told, on board the aircraft, there was two pilots, five flight attendants, and 40 passengers, and everyone on board the plane was killed in the crash. I'm intentionally being cagey because yeah. now it's like we have to figure <laughs> out what happened. The mystery. Right. The Darien National Park, that's like right on the border between Colombia and Panama. Like the border between the two countries goes right through it. I, I will admit, I feel like my knowledge, Central America, where it connects to like South America, 
it is, is a little lacking. I have to look at the map sometimes when we're talking about incidents in this area to kind of like wrap my head around specifically what we're talking about. I did too. I pulled one up because you said that Cancun was the most southern place you've been. Yeah. That's not entirely true. Oh, yeah? You have been to Puerto Rico, which is just south of Cancun. Oh, well, I'm talking about like... Yeah, yeah. That's why I didn't bring <laughs> it up. North America, C- Central America. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't bring it up because I was like... I didn't know if you, that if we counted that as like America, North, South America, Central America. Although when I lived there, I was surprised. Like living in Puerto Rico, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm re- like South America is a lot closer than you think it is. <laughs> like Venezuela is just right over there. <laughs> yeah. It's not too far away. The wreckage was discovered by search aircraft on the morning of June 7th, 1992 in a densely forested jungle of hilly and rugged terrain. Examination of the wreckage showed that the aircraft had broken up severely before impact with the ground. And the largest portions of the aircraft were the cockpit, the central section of the portions of the left and right wings, the horizontal and vertical stabilizer, and the rear part of the fuselage containing the rear galley and bathroom. The outer wing sections were found approximately 300 feet east of the main wreckage. And the partitions were bent in a left and right direction from the wingtip to the engine pillars and met 70 feet apart. None of the leading edge high lift devices were found in this area. So things are a little spread apart is what they're getting at here. The cockpit, including much of the electronics compartment, was located about 5,000 feet from the center section. The cockpit lay on its right side on a heading approximately north and had been flattened about half its width by the impact forces. Which is crazy to think about that it hit the ground so hard that the cockpit smushed to half its normal size. Ooh, yeah. I I don't think of planes as smushing either normally, so... Right, yeah. So it hit hard. And yeah, there's a little more I want to get into, but I'm going to wait a second here. The cockpit voice recorder suffered only light impact damage in the accident and showed no evidence of smoke residue or heat damage, which sounds good, right? You're like, oh, the cockpit voice recorder is going to be fine. When they opened it up, they realized that the tape was broken. They said that the, the tape that it recorded on was like a plate of spaghetti. It had all become unspooled and was just loose everywhere inside the cockpit voice recorder. Because remember, this is before they had like solid state recording. It was like an actual reel-to-reel tape. So if you just imagine like all of that tape just coming loose inside the cockpit voice recorder. It just comes loose. And, so they have to like rewrap it? <laughs> exactly. Right. You like, re-reel just, it. Uh, yeah. If you're familiar with like old cassette tapes or, you know, even like film strip, you know, you've probably encountered this before and you like straighten it all out and re-reel it. So that's, yeah. you know, what the investigators had to do. They had to like straighten all the, the tape out and then re-reel it. But when they play it back, the last recording was of a flight that had taken place nine days before the accident. What? What happened? The cockpit voice recorder had broken during that other oh, flight no. and no one had realized it. And it had been broken. So it wasn't working at the time of this accident. Nine days ago. No. Yeah, talk about a real bummer. It's like they find it and it's like, oh, no, it's broken. Then they fix it. Like, yeah, we fixed it. It's like, oh, no, it's, it was broken for days and there's no usable data on it. So, you know, they still have the flight data recorder, of course, but the lack of information from the cockpit voice recorder kept them from discovering which pilot was actually flying. Yeah. The plane, right. They, they like, there's, there's a lot that they don't know. They don't have any recordings of what conversations were had, what alarms may have been sounding. Yeah. That is a, it is a mystery, Gus. And what did the, what was the crew saying? What were they thinking? You know, you don't, you don't have any of that data. So, so they looked to the flight data recorder and it, the flight data recorder was severely damaged by the impact, but luckily the tape was intact. And, so they did. They could operate and they could try to recreate things based off of the flight data recorder. Okay. So examination of the recording indicated only normal flight information until about 95 seconds before the loss of information, which would mean mm. everything seemed fine up until the last 95 seconds of the flight. 
At that moment, the aircraft had entered a slight right-wing down attitude without a corresponding change of course. Hmm. Around the longitudinal axis, which is like the roll axis, if you imagine a plane rolling left to right, uh-huh. around that axis, it had an attitude of about 35 degrees left wing down. Then about 25 seconds before the loss of information, it did like a, an aileron roll to the right at 25 degrees from the right wing down. And the pitch attitude had decreased to 15 degrees nose down. So it's almost like it had been in a 35 degree left bank then all of a sudden, it very rapidly snapped to the right to 25 degrees right wing down, and the nose went down 15 degrees. Okay. Hmm. Which is and, weird. And with no, in, like, they didn't give any input for that? It just happened? That's what the flight data recorder is telling them. That, that, that is the attitude of the plane. The attitude of the plane just went from that to that. Just mm. looking at the attitude information, it very rapidly snapped essentially 60 degrees from one direction to another. Okay, go on. <laughs> At the end of the recording, the information indicates the aircraft had a speed of 486 knots on a heading of 356 degrees, a pitch of 63 degrees right wing down. Wow. And the altitude at the time of the last recorded information was 9,900 feet above sea level. So it's like they're heading north, pitched way down, way like the right wing is way down and going really fast. And so I guess they spun, spun almost like because they were going east, right? Correct. So, yeah, they must have spun like 200, 270 degrees or something, huh? To, to be pointed north. So they probably from the right, the right pointed down, they go, whoosh, right? Right. I think that's a, that's a very fair assessment of what's going on based on all the information we have. I think the sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably what it sounded like, too. <laughs> the almost total disintegration of the aircraft, the complete lack of cockpit voice recorder and the weirdness in the actually the quirkiness in that flight data recorder roll data all kind of really left a lot of questions in the investigators' heads. Yeah. Uh, so when they when they start looking at this, you know, they they look at the different possible scenarios that have co- could have caused this plane to come down. They consider scenarios like terrorism, sudden depressurization, or bad weather. So like you know, kind of earlier we talked about like everything's a possibility. They're kind of like let's open it all go through everything, start eliminating stuff, and then narrow it down and figure out exactly what this could have been. Yeah, the sudden depressurization is weird because that didn't seem like that would push it, make it go to the right, but maybe if it was on that section of the plane? Maybe, and I think maybe the thought process is why would the pilots be giving inputs like that? Severe left bank, severe right bank? Were they hypoxic? Like, were they not thinking straight? Mm. Mm. Oh, oh, so... The pressurization could have happened sooner. Right. And maybe it was affecting the, um, their thought. I think I, I'm speculating. That might be what yeah. they're thinking of. That might be the angle they're, they're taking here. You said they were 27,000 feet up? 25,000. 25. Okay. And so that's enough. Yeah, that's still, that, that's very thin air. Well, uh, what we're going to break down a little, like almost like play by play, what the, what the aircraft went through here. Okay. So at 136 universal time, the flight took off uh, on runway two and left. And the first part of the flight path was the 149-degree radial from the Toboga VOR. And after takeoff, they made contact with Central Panama at 137 and requested a heading of 120 degrees to circle the large area of bad weather located in the Gulf of Panama. Like we said, they took off to the southwest, kind of turned southeast, and they're beginning to kind of like figure out how they're going to get around the weather. Ten minutes later, at 146, the crew asked the controller for additional information on weather conditions along their flight path. 
And the controller reported that bad weather was severe 30 to 50 miles from his radar position, and that from southwest to 60 miles from his radar antenna, it was scattered. He also explained to them he could not have weather information beyond 60 miles, since beyond that distance, the radar antenna could only show aircraft transponder signals. So he, you know, he, he was only looking at his limited 60-mile window of weather. Okay. At 1.48, the flight crew reported being at flight level 250, and this is the last known transmission received by the flight controller. The COPA operations officers reported that the person who made the radio transmission was the captain, which by company practice indicates that the first officer was flying the aircraft. Again, remember, with no cockpit voice recorder, yeah. they're having to rely on other things to try to piece together who was flying, what was happening. So as of that moment, they know the captain was making the radio calls, which means the first officer was flying the plane. So now that if they, if they're, well, I guess it could be either one of them if they're investigating like one of the pilots doing some, but that could have been either one of them still. Right. So nine minutes later at 157, so nine minutes after that radio transmission at 157, mm -hmm. the controller transmitted to COPA 201 that radar contact had been lost. The controller made several unsuccessful attempts to contact the flight but received no response. And the controller also requested another flight to attempt to contact COPA 201. And we've, we've talked about this before, since the radio maybe can't get all the way there from the ground. You know, the ground the air traffic control will talk to a plane in the air that's closer to the plane they're trying to talk to and relay a message. Yeah. And this was an Arrow Air flight. And the Arrow Air flight crew also was unsuccessful in contacting COPA 201. And that's three minutes before they lose control, right? Because they lost control at 2 p.m.? Yeah, that's correct. Oh, good memory, Chris. Even I didn't remember. I had to, well, I had I didn't to double remember check it. that. I wrote it down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, just, just to be clear, it's not 2 p.m. Universal. It's 2 a.m. Universal. So this was an evening flight for Panama. Okay, 2 a.m. And so, it's so, hmm, curious. So, <laughs> so that, that means po possibly if there was malicious intent that like radio was turned off or, or disconnected or... It, it, it could be. Look at you. You're really, you're really becoming like a, a full-fledged investigator here, Chris. <laughs> so like as part of like trying to figure out what's going on, the controller also makes telephone contact with the air traffic controller in Colombia, who works that airspace to try to see if he can contact the flight. And you know, also that effort was unsuccessful. So shortly thereafter, search and rescue effort was initiated to locate the aircraft. And like we mentioned earlier, they found the aircraft the next morning with no survivors. The controller reported that he had decided to vector the flight around the north side of the bad weather, since other aircraft were also diverting to the north. When COPA 201 asked, if, you know, asked the controller if they were still on radar, he told them yes. And when the pilot requested permission to return to their route, the controller said he thought it was a bit early as there would still appear to be some bad weather on his radar screen ahead of the aircraft. And he said also it's not unusual to lose radar contact in the area of the flight's last signal return. He also stated he waited about seven minutes after observing the last return of the signal before he transmitted radar contact lost at 157. And there's no evidence of having faced problems with land navigation aid equipment. So the air traffic controller knew he sometimes loses radar contact with planes in that area. So he gave it a few minutes before he, you know, really started investigating and finding out what's going on. Yeah, okay. Residents near the area of the accident reported having observed a ball of fire falling from the sky, followed by small sparks of fire. And during the interview with the residents, they themselves reported they saw stars in the sky and that it was not raining. They do not remember hearing thunder or seeing lightning. So I think that's kind of a, a, a big clue, right? If the people on the ground can see stars, then... The weather's not bad. It, the storm, they weren't in that storm that they yeah. were trying to avoid. Investigators searched the flight path and found the aircraft was nowhere near the storm when it fell from the sky. So they can rule out weather as a factor in the crash. If, if people on the ground were able to see the stars and see the fire, they know the plane was not in clouds. It was probably clear of the weather. Yeah. You can rule it out. 
Explosive experts searched for evidence of an onboard bomb. Mm. The signature blast marks from a superheated gases would have been present uh, on metal debris. An examination of the wreckage and the remains of the passengers proved there was no indication of a bomb. Like oh. they checked the bodies as well for any shrapnel, like from a, from a bomb. And now there is none. They don't find any of the explosive residue. And you know, they found most of the plane structure, so they're able to test a good deal of it. So they can say that pretty definitively. So no bomb, no weather. Were there any other, like, parts from other planes nearby? <laughs> well, so that's, that's a, a really good question, right? So that's the other thing we talked about, is the possibly colliding with a plane that's running silently, that's running drugs. Because this is where this happened. It's near cartel-controlled territory. Mm. So, like you said, what they'll do to try to determine that is, one, they'll look for parts from another plane. Two, they'll look for paint rub. Oh, oh, yeah, where it would have like, yeah. Right, where the two planes would have collided, you know, there would be a transfer of paint from one surface to another. Mm-hmm. And no, they don't find any evidence of any other plane parts or any paint transfer from, hmm. from any other aircraft. Hey, everyone, want to take a moment to remind you, RTX 2023 is happening this July 7th through 9th. RTX is our favorite time of the year. We get to interact with all of the amazing people that give us the opportunity to make content. It's a celebration of all things Rooster Teeth with panels, special guests, community artists, cosplay, and more. So there'll be exclusive reveals, meet and greets with Rooster Teeth talent, and special merch available only during the event. We're changing up how the convention feels this year. It's going to be awesome. Imagine a mini Epcot-style convention show floor with different attractions and activations from your favorite Rooster Teeth brands, all wrapped up in a summer camp theme. It's the summer camp for indoor kids with Face Jam's Rat and Grackle Pub, a Red Web Escape Room, a Bleep Face Museum, Achievement Hunter Mini Golf, and even more cool stuff to do that we're saving for attendees to experience. Thanks for listening to me get excited about RTX. We're looking forward to meeting all of you there. Head over to rtxaustin.com to get more information about the event and buy your badge. I, I want to I rewind for just a second. There was an additional thing I thought was a really interesting tidbit that I, I read about in this, on this incident. You know, they, they investigated the bomb. We talked about how they found there was no evidence of a bomb. And they also found there was no evidence of fire before the accident. So there was no onboard fire that led to this situation. And the way they determined that is they inspect the outflow valve. You know, we talk about like how there's pressure release and uh-huh. there's like an outflow valve where the pressure in the cabin gets vented out, essentially. Yes. Yeah, so there would have been like... Soot. smoke residue and stuff right. if there'd been a fire inside huh right and there was none there was no hmm. soot no smoke residue on the outflow valve so that tells them there was not a fire in the cabin before the crash sounds like something internal in the plane something busted so i think you know they also look at the final two minutes of the flight and they're you know, they keep looking at this bank that happens where it's like mm-hmm. rolling to the left and it snaps back to the right so, you know, they perform an autopsy and toxicology report on the pilots to see, you know, were they under the influence of any medication? Were they on drugs? Were they hypoxic, like we talked about? Mm-hmm. And it reveals that they were not incapacitated by any medical issues at the time of the accident. Yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah, no hypoxia, no drugs in their system, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that should explain any type of erratic behavior. Hmm. This is the kind of frustrating incident where all of the obvious easy ones, it's like, nope. Nope, nope, like eliminating all of the all of the easy possibilities. So, you know, like you, you meant you said it a little while ago, kind of almost in passing, like it must have been something inside the plane. Yeah, like a part something that was built into it. Like what do you mean? Do, do you mean like do you have anything specifically in mind? Because there's fire, so it seems like a like maybe wiring sparked something or or I'll throw you an additional 
wrinkle right now, Chris. Sorry, I'm going to make it a little more complicated for you. Okay. At this point, also, when they're investigating all this, they determined that the fire that the people on the ground saw uh-huh. was the fuel in the wings igniting as the plane broke apart. Hmm. 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 The fuel in the wings igniting. Right. So it's like that the plane is descending so quickly, it begins to break apart and fuel starts to spill out and ignites. And that's what that fire is that they see. Okay. So there wasn't an explosion because it sounds like that would have led to like some shrapnel. Right. Even if it wasn't a bomb. And then it sounds like the fire was only after the fact, after it started going down that fast. Right. Exactly. Sounds more and more like a like terrorist or something or or someone doing it consciously a, a a villain. You know, after you know, after eliminating all of these things, like you know, like you, the investigators are trying to to see what's left, what's left on the table. So, do, do they look into the backgrounds of the pilots and and the passengers? Well, I, I assume they did, but we're going to go in a slightly different direction right oh. now. They decide to look at the instruments to see, you know. Kind of like how you said, maybe something was broken on the plane. I think that's the next step they take at this point, where it's like, let's examine what we found. Let's examine the instruments and see if maybe there was there was something that was not working right. See if they'll play for us, right? And the captain and first officer's gyros and attitude indicators were tested, and they found an anomaly in them. Oh, the gyros seemed to operate properly, but when testing the captain's attitude indicator. It would like freeze and stick momentarily every now and then, and then continue. The gyro is in that is, is that the thing that like determines the like the levelness of the plane, or so the gyro is an internal component that kind of measures the roll and the bank of the plane, and then dis- translates it and displays it on the attitude indicator. You can think of the attitude indicator like a ball. It's like the one that's blue on top and brown on the bottom, and it shows when the plane's banking or when it's climbing or descending. The gyro was working fine, but the, the, like the ball part, the attitude indicator would like stick every now and then. It would like freeze and then unfreeze and then keep working. Like the mechanical part of it or like the computer? Uh, you, know, is that, you know what I'm saying? Like, was there a... Well, they, they, like, obviously they, they, they test it and they try to figure it out. And they find out that there was a manufacturing discrepancy in the vertical barrel gyro rotor synchronizer wiring, which resulted in a short circuit. They basically, they found a break in one wire feeding information to the captain's attitude indicator. It was like oh. the wire was barely making contact. So when it was making contact, it was working, but then like the wire would move a little bit and lose contact and the attitude indicator would like stick freeze and up. freeze. And then it would make contact again and it would start working. Does the autopilot function off the gyrometer or the attitude indicator? So the gyro, uh, just to be clear, it's all one unit. There's a gyro in the attitude indicator. Okay that feeds it that data like it's all like that's it's the same thing it's not like one thing yeah okay right it's not like yeah i mean it is two separate parts but it's all in the same component so what kind of causal or kind of related to what you're asking investigators realized that the flight data recorder was getting faulty roll data because it was reading its data from the captain's attitude indicator those quick oh. rolls and that quick snapping left and right that wasn't actually happening that was the attitude indicator would get stuck and it would, that's why it would look like the plane was in a bank and then it would unstick and it would look like the plane just very quickly banked in the other direction. Okay. All right. Interesting. Through calculating, you know, all the other parameters they have on the flight data recorder, they found that flight 201 was actually making really slow banking corrections to counter the faulty roll data from the malfunctioning attitude indicator. Mm. So, the pilots weren't like whipping the plane around left and right. They were, you know, slowly banking more and more in each direction. However, because that 
attitude indicator was sticking, they didn't realize how far they had banked until they kept banking to a point where the plane became unrecoverable. Oh, oh, holy, wait. So they were just, they banked that hard? Well, it's like the attitude indicator froze for so long that they kept banking gently, but over time it just kept growing and growing to where they were banked at an extremely, they were going very fast, banked at an extreme angle in one direction. Did it like, in a, a point where the, the plane, what did what happened to the plane? Did it like so fast in such a weird angle that it like, like you said, broke the plane? Right. Essentially, it started coming apart. Oh my God. So, and it's from the speed that they were going and the, the crazy angle that they were going. Right. They were banked and then it also caused them to nose down, which also, of course, caused them to accelerate even more. And they started just accelerating, going way too fast for the maneuvers that they were doing. And then it became unrecoverable. They're at a, such a steep angle. There's no way to pull out of it. It's just impossible. That is, that's crazy, Gus. So, and they couldn't even, they had no idea until it just happened, I guess. Right. Because also, remember, it's dark and they're out over the ocean. So they have no visual reference. They can't just look outside and see like, oh, we're banked. They have to rely on their instrument and the instrument's giving them bad data. I guess you say they're over the ocean, I guess, because they were high enough up and, and, and this was, where was it? Like the ocean, it's, it's a narrow enough uh, section of land that they were over the ocean? Well, no, they had flown out east of Panama, out over the water uh-huh. when all this is happening. And I think, you know, they eventually crash in that Darien National Park. Remember, because remember, Panama's really thin. thin. Yeah, that's what, I was, well, that's what I was wondering about. Like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm zooming in. They can be over ocean and then back over ground very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and also, since it's such a remote area where they're, it, like we said, that jungle's so remote, it's not like there's city lights there that they can mm-hmm. orient. It's all yeah. dark. They can't tell anything. So it's, it's all pitch black outside. So they don't know how much they're banking. Mm. They have to look at the instrument. And there was nothing else that was like making warning noises saying, yo, 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 stop, you know? Well, like we've talked about before in previous episodes, the first officer and the captain's attitude indicators are normally fed from different sources. That's right. Yeah, so if one doesn't work, you compare them. And on top of that, there's a standby one, like a third one. Yeah. So if, they're, if the captain and the first officers don't agree, they look at the third one and they're like, all right, which two agree? Those are the right ones. The one that doesn't agree, that's the wrong one. Yeah. So that, that becomes a question. You said the captain's was the one that was messing up, right? Right, right. Captain wasn't flying Theoretically. Right. That's an excellent point, Chris. The, the first officer was the one that, should, that is theoretically flying here. Yeah. They, so they have this, what appears to be a smoking gun. This probably caused the accident, but why? Yeah. Like you said, first officer's flying. His attitude indicator was correct. There's a standby indicator they can use to compare them. What happened here? How, why did this plane crash? Yeah. When... Investigators recreated the events of this flight and simulations. There was, there was a, a really weird discovery. They discovered that the accident aircraft had a, what they call a modified gyro switch that differed from the equipment on which they were trained. In the event that one attitude indicator fails, uh-huh. there's a switch they can flip. Like let's say, in, like in this case, right? The captain's failed. Yeah. There's a switch they can flip that says, ignore the captain's attitude indicator. Or mm-hmm. like use the first officer's attitude indicator to override the captain's. That way, the captain's becomes basically a mirror of the first officer's. That, that way, they, they can both see good data without having to you know, look, look at the other one. In the simulator, flipping the toggle switch to the left switches the captain's instrument to auxiliary gyro independent of the other two. Okay, the, the, the backup, the third backup. Right, in the simulator, flip the switch to the left, the captain's pulls from backup data. However, on flight 201... 
flipping the switch to the left puts both instruments on the captain's malfunctioning gyro. Oh! And the vertical gyro switch on flight 201 was found in the what they call the both on VG1 position. So they had flipped it to the left, which meant the first officer's attitude indicator was now pulling data from the captain's first attitude indicator. And then, so, so that made it worse, right? Right, right. They, now, they, both attitude indicators are wrong. Oh, no. And did they realize that happened? Well, there's no cockpit voice recorder, so we oh, don't know. No. Yeah, what'll typically happen is when there is a disagreement between the attitude indicators, there's like a little alarm, like a little, not, no, not like an audio alarm, but like a little light that lights up that says like, mm-hmm. disagree. Your attitude disagree. And then like they flip the switch. And then once they flip the switch, that disables the alarm. So most likely they knew there was a disagreement and they flipped it. But in the simulator, flipping it to the left resolves the problem. But in the specific plane they were in, flipping it to the left makes the problem worse. They were manually flying too, right? Not Yeah, they were hand flying. Okay. Yeah. Copa Airlines had acquired a fleet of 737 aircraft. They were originally delivered to a variety of airlines, including Britannia Airways, German Airlines, Lufthansa, Air New Zealand, Gulf Air, Malaysian Airlines, Thai Airways. And the result of all component tests led to the discovery of an anomaly that could have been the causative factor in the accident. Details of a manufacturing discrepancy in the vertical barrel gyro rotor synchronizer wiring resulted in a short circuit Flight instrument configuration varies based on individual specifications of the original seven purchasing airlines and modernization of flight instrument systems during the 15 years of production. The operator had five different instrument deployment configurations in its fleet of aircraft. So it's all this to say, it was obviously the short circuit in the wiring. There was a problem in the instrument, but this airline had purchased these planes from seven different airlines that all had different configurations on their instruments. That's So crazy. there was no standardization in the layout of the buttons or what the switches did. Which is why these pilots train one way in the simulator, but in the plane, it's not the same. That is crazy. So, like, yeah, I know initially there's a lot of questions, like, how can this happen? They have standby instruments. They should be trained. It seemed, based on the way that it was, the instruments were found, they did what they thought they were supposed to do. They flipped the appropriate switch to the left, oh my which God. is what you do in the simulator. But yeah. on this specific plane, flipping it to the left is not what you need to do. They should have flipped it to the right. That's so frustrating. Yeah. As we mentioned, there's at least three separate independent attitude indication systems on commercial air transport aircraft. Like we said, the one in front of the captain, the one in front of the first officer, and then the emergency standby indicator located in the common area of the instrument panel between the two flight crew members. The two ADIs, the ADI is the attitude indicator. So if you hear me say ADI, that's what that is. The two ADIs are independently supplied with pitch and roll information by two independent vertical gyros. In the normal mode of operation, VG1, which is the captain's gyro, provides information to the captain's ADI. VG2 provides information to the first officer's ADI. The difference between the information of the captain and that of the first officer are perceived in an instrument comparator. If the two instrument systems disagree, warning lights are displayed above both attitude indicators. Like I said, when they're not the same, there's a warning for them. If there's a disagreement between the two indicators, the crew can then change the operation of both ADIs to either of the two vertical gyros. And once this has been done, both ADIs should indicate the same thing and the comparator warning enunciator should turn off because it's not comparing anymore. It's putting the same data to both. During the examination of the wreckage, this transfer switch was found to be engaged at the time of impact. The investigators indicated both ADIs were displaying information from VG1 because the transfer switch was selected both on VG1. Uh, that's, they flipped it to the left, which means feed from the vertical gyro on the captain's side. Another switch indicated the compass selection was selected on both on compasses, which indicated both heading indicators 
were being actuated by the directional gyroscope. If the flight crew suspects there's an error in the indication system of the pilot, the operating procedure directs the crew to compare the indications between the three systems, confirm there's an error, identify the vertical gyro source associated with the error, and then switch to a vertical gyro source that can supply attitude information reliable to both ADI for the remnant of the flight. So that's essentially what they did. They looked, they determined which one was wrong, and then they flipped the switch again. In the simulator, they flipped it the correct way, but on this specific plane, they flipped it the wrong way. And, and, and at that point, they were already so far messed up or so far, they just, oh man, I get it. They were trying to operate based on what they're seeing. And, you know, since it's sticking, it's not giving them real-time information. It's playing catch-up every now and then. And they just make the situation worse and worse. So, like, if you want, uh, there's, they actually attempt to break it down to kind of give, like, a time frame. Because I know you're, you're curious, like, how much were they, were they whipping yeah. the plane around? How much were they banking? You know, the 160-degree course was selected with an inclination to the right of 23 degrees. They began banking, and it took seven seconds to reach that. So it means that their rate would have been about three degrees per second. After reaching the 23-degree bank, the aircraft then rolled back to level wings direction at the same rate. So it rolled three degrees a second to the right, then rolled back three degrees per second to the left. But it stopped four degrees bank right wing down for about 15 seconds. And at that point, they say one of two things could have happened. The first would have been an announcement of an indication incompatibility in the comparators of the ADI. This is probably when that alert popped up saying that the ADIs were disagreeing. Mm -hmm. The crew at that time selected the position of both on vertical gyroscope one on the navigation transfer switch panel. That's the switch that was different in the simulator than on the plane. And then by doing this, the comparator lights were turned off by this action. The pilot who was flying at the time attempted to correct the aircraft's roll attitude by applying aileron to level the wings. While applying aileron, the aircraft responded in the commanded direction. However, the ADI did not respond and continued to indicate a roll of 37 degrees to the left on the longitudinal axis. So they're trying to correct the bank and they're, they're doing it. The plane's responding, but the ADI is not showing it. So they don't, the crew doesn't think anything's happening. Oh, no. The crew member then responded by applying right aileron to correct the turn. And the aircraft responded by following the right turn order. The 37 degree turn of the left wing down was maintained for 30 seconds at which time the ADI turned 117 degrees to the right on the longitudinal axis, coinciding with the turning uh, attitude of the aircraft. Even though it was showing 37 degrees left, then all of a sudden it snapped to 117 degrees right, which is what they actually were at. Oh. And at that point, the aircraft was lost at that point. Oh because the nose God. fell below the horizon and speed began to increase. That's so... Oh, man, I'd be so mad. Right, and that's what pilots are trained to do. When you can't see outside, you have yeah, to trust your you instruments. Yeah, the instruments. Oh my, I would be so mad if I was, I mean, they didn't have time to be mad, but geez. Right. Yeah. The aircraft was actually, began diving at the ground at a rate of 49,000 feet per minute, which means it would have. In 30 seconds. Right. At 25,000 feet, they would have hit the ground in 30 seconds. It, it fragmented in the air. So it came apart uh, below about 10,000 feet above sea level at a speed of more than 486 knots, which is 559 miles an hour or 900 kilometers an hour. So yeah, it's it just basically was pointed down really fast and just started breaking apart. That and within thirty seconds, you that know, it's crazy that it happened that fast. But I guess they were doing things that it's not supposed to do, not realizing it for a while, right? Because the instruments weren't telling them what was going on. Their instruments were unreliable. And man, that is really frustrating. Like I said, they 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 came up with two scenarios, and what I said there was one scenario where. 
you know, they were banking and then they tried to correct it. And then the disagree came on, the disagreement uh, enunciator. The second scenario was only, was pretty much the same thing. It was really only different in that if this crew or a previous crew had selected both on VG1 before the discrepancy noted above, the events would have been pretty much the same, only the, it would have been the absence of that warning from the enunciator. So the, the, the second scenario is basically maybe they had switched to VG1 earlier in the flight or maybe a previous crew had done it. There's no way to know without a cockpit voice recorder. Did, did, did it show how often that, that thingy would glitch out? It didn't give an exact breakdown of how, how often the attitude indicator was sticking. But even if it's just a few seconds at a time, you can see how quickly things fall apart Yeah, when that happens. There's quite a bit of technical talk in this report about the wiring, <laughs> how the wiring came basically lost a little bit of um, insulation and that's what caused it to be exposed and that's what kind of caused it. It was like what they call a post in there that it, it was kind of rubbing against that kind of caused it to sheathe and kind of break apart and that's why it was only intermittently touching with itself and that's why the attitude indicator was intermittently working. Mm. Whose fault was this? The, the manufacturer or the airline for not training them? A per- I don't... Well, so... That becomes the question now, right? It's okay. We know more or less, we have a good, very good idea of what caused this. Yeah. Now it's like, now you have to look at the maintenance history of the plane, right? Oh yeah. Was this an ongoing issue? Did they know about it? So they review the maintenance history of the plane. You know, all the maintenance that's carried out while it was with COPA and with the previous operator in an attempt to identify any maintenance activity that could have caused this. Mm-hmm. There was no indication in the records that the accident aircraft had experienced any significant abnormality with any of the systems, with specific emphasis on the attitude reference system of the flight instruments, which had not been corrected before the accident flight. So there was no history of problem with this. That's even more frustrating because there was no chance for them to have fixed it. Right. Because lots of times we'll get to this point and be like, let's look at the maintenance. Like, oh, this was a recurring problem that nobody had fixed correctly. No. It, it did not show up in any of the maintenance history for this plane. This was just happened to be the time when it finally began working intermittently on a, like a nighttime flight, avoiding weather when there's no visual landmarks to help you try to gauge how much of a bank you're in. Did they have like fault? I, I think that is the, uh, that's like the American in us. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the, the, who would you sue? Who's at fault? Who's, you know, who's going to yeah. pay for this? So there were wrongful death lawsuits brought against one of the part suppliers for the Boeing 737. It's a company called Lucas Aerospace. And that case was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. And in 1993, one of the relatives of one of the passengers, who was a U.S. passenger, filed a lawsuit against Copa Airlines in a Texas federal court, alleging that the airline had sold a ticket to the passenger through a travel agency in Houston, although the airline has no operations center in Texas, that case was dismissed eventually mm. in 1994. So it seems like the only lawsuit was against a part supplier and that was settled out of court. Mm. So I, that, that's really about it. But yeah, it's a tough one. I don't know who to blame for this. Yeah, I, I don't know. Because it's like the, the part was the, the cause of it, but then the, having the planes not have a standardized system was also the fault, but then also the airline that bought it didn't train the pilots that systems varied plane to plane. Yeah. And you know, that is maybe the one bit of fault you could talk about, or I can think about is when the pilots realize this, you know, they, they compare, they identify the issue and, you know, switch over to VG1. They don't continue to look at the standby, the emergency indicator. 
Mm, yeah. Because mm. that one would still be working correctly. You know, when all is going on and, you know, they're, they're trying to correct the plane, the, the whole time when, the, when their attitude and the is not working, the standby one should be working. But it also happened so fast. Also, that's that's the thing. It, yeah, it was also just a matter of seconds. I do want to also clarify. Earlier, I said the attitude indicator is like a ball. You can think of it like a ball with the blue on top and the black on bottom or brown on bottom. Nowadays, a lot of times it's it's like a computer display. <laughs> so modern, like what they call glass cockpits, would probably only have that as like the standby one. The main one that they use in front of them is probably uh, electronic or glass. But this was 1992, so they probably had the the old style back then. So, you know, the conclusions were that the aircraft lost its structural integrity before crashing to the ground due to excessive speed and G-forces outside of its tolerances for flight, lim- over flight limitations. There was no presence of explosives or incendiary products, no evidence of a fire pr- found prior to fragmentation of the aircraft. In a review of the documents and the history of the aircraft, it was observed that it did not have ongoing discrepancies due to maintenance that could have contributed to the accident. That's a tough one, man. It was not a known issue. I know. It's like it just so happened to, to finally break right then. No evidence was observed that the electrical system that powers the flight instruments had presented failure because the flight data recorder continued to operate until the aircraft began to lose its structural integrity. There was a tropical storm lateral to the path of the flight made by the aircraft. The aircraft did not enter the storm area during the flight. Witnesses indicated there was no bad weather at the accident site. However, during the flight, there was no natural reference. That's to say it was dark. There was no... Yeah. No way they could see outside. The roll attitude information and the heading information from from the flight data recorder of the accident aircraft, which records the signals from the captain's flight instruments, confirms the existence of an intermittent error in the attitude indication. Since the aircraft flight controls cannot carry out the high rate of change in the roll maneuvers indicated by the flight data recorder. So that's the same number, those weird like rapid snaps to the left and the right that were on the flight data recorder. Like, those were impossible. The plane can't actually do that. Mm. So that's why that, that kind of confirms that there was an error in there and the data that it was being fed, it's being fed and it was being fed the data from the, co- from the captain's side. In addition, following periods of incorrect attitude information, the flight data recorder information indicated that the crew tried to maneuver the aircraft in order to correct the attitude errors that were indicated. An intermittent short circuit was found in the winding of the barrel synchronizer of the vertical twist, which was caused by a pinched wire against the loop. Loss of voltage to the barrel synchronizer would cause the respective attitude directional indicator to freeze or lock in place. A pinched wire, Chris. I mean... Jeez, jeez. Well, it's not just that, though, to be clear. It's a pinched wire with irregular planes and not bad information about those planes. So it's right, like, but it all, it all starts. It all starts, it, yeah, but it's like, wire. it's still like three factors. Yeah. Which... Is it more comforting? <laughs> the first officer could have been the pilot flying at the time the indication of attitude error began because the captain was found in the accident aircraft with no indication of having a seatbelt on and a tray of food was also found in the flight cabin. So presumably the captain was eating dinner, eating a dinner service, and the first officer was flying the plane at the time this happened. It is most likely that the emergency standby attitude indicator was available to the flight crew during the intermittent failure of the captain's primary system since the post-impact damage presented by the emergency indicator indicated it was operating at the moment of impact with the ground. That's kind of what I mentioned earlier. It's like the standby one was still working. (laughs) They should have maybe been referencing that. The emergency attitude indicator was not used successfully to identify attitude error in the primary flight instruments and maintain control of the flight because the company's simulator and training procedure was carried out in a different cabin configuration from that of the accident aircraft, and this training introduced an element of confusion. So again, 
a slightly different aircraft layout compared to the simulator they train on. And it could have contributed to them not looking at the standby indicator. Fleet cockpit standardization is a factor in this accident because the flight crew repeated previous actions learned in the simulator to select an alternate source of guidance that would have been appropriate for some COPA aircraft with one source. Auxiliary vertical gyro, but in the accident aircraft, moving the vertical gyro script to the both on VG1 position resulted in loss of reference from VG2 and further confusion. Again, that's just that standardization. The switch was different in the simulator than on the actual plane. And just a couple more to go through here. The lack of horizon visible at cruise flight level due to night conditions and upcoming bad weather. Insufficient cross-checking between the primary attitude indicating systems and the indicator of emergency attitude to identify intermittent attitude error and to select a reliable, correct source of attitude information. Not using the emergency standby one enough to verify things. Non-standardized cabin configurations among aircraft in the company's fleet, which required the crew to determine how to place switches based on the aircraft being operated at the time. And the last one on here, incomplete simulator and ground crew training as it did not present aircraft differences and crew resource management in sufficient detail to provide the crew with knowledge to overcome intermittent errors in attitude indication and to maintain control of the aircraft. So just kind of could be better training. Yeah, yeah. So there were some safety recommendations here that were addressed to different groups and different different parties involved. To the International Civil Aviation Organization, the FAA, and Boeing, Provide information regarding this accident to all aeronautical authorities and operators. The benefit will be increased cockpit awareness to carry out more effective combined flight instrument checks and to move airlines towards standardization of aircraft instrument and system deployment. So just educate everyone about what happened here. That way you know that this is something that can happen and that airlines should be standardizing their cockpits to avoid this kind of accident. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like standardizing cockpits, you should already, they shouldn't have to say it. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, sometimes these planes are old or they're like different generations and things change as they're made. You know, this yeah. Boeing 737 has been flying for like 50 years now. The Boeing 737 that gets delivered today is nothing like the one that was delivered when it first came off the line 50 years ago. So it's like you have to, but there are, of course, models along the way. So I, I get it, but the, you, they need to like figure out what that standardization is. To the operator, in this case, Copa Airlines, including the flight crew operations manual before the startup checklist, a daily test of the voice recorder. So test the cockpit voice recorder every day to make sure it's working. Establish fleet standardization objectives for air transport operations that include aircraft systems and cockpit instrument deployments and achieve such objectives through review of aircraft purchases, leases, or direct modifications to aircraft. In cases where instruments and non-standard aircraft must be operated, Training must be provided on the ground and in a simulator specifically on the differences and the flight crew operations manual and checklist. Verification procedures must be quoted to cover all aircraft in the fleet. So it's saying if the plane that you're flying is not standard compared to everything else, you must have specific training that focuses exclusively on those differences. Yeah. Which, of course, makes sense. And the last one on here, establish initial training and recurring training of crew resource management following the International Civil Aviation Organization guidelines and the operational examples of the largest airlines in the world. So again, just more CRM training. I feel Mm -hmm. like that comes up so often. That's like almost all of them in some way. You got, you have, that's why you have two pilots in the cockpit to divide tasks and assign them and have two people troubleshooting and working on something. One person doing it by themselves is not nearly as effective. But that's it. Copa Airlines Flight 201. Man, just an absolutely frustrating one all the way around. Not because, I feel like I say that sometimes when it's like, oh, there was so much incompetence or so many things that went wrong. It's like here, it's just like, 
It was almost unpredictable. I know. I know. Uh, yeah, this one. That's that's what's frustrating. Is like, man, it's like hard. It's one of the rare cases where there wasn't that much that could have been done to avoid it. Right. Maybe flipping the switch in the other direction, which they had not been trained to do. All right, but that's it. Don't forget. I feel like uh, we mentioned it a couple times. RTX is coming up July seventh to 9th in Austin. Yeah, you can come get to RTX. We're wrapping up this podcast in a couple of weeks. Uh, our last episode for Black Box Down will be at the end of June, right before RTX, and we're going to have a, a panel for Black Box Down there. It should be fun. We'll talk uh, about uh, doing this podcast for three years and the things we've learned, and maybe we'll cover. We'll, we'll briefly talk about some accidents we didn't get to uh, cover. Yeah. But anyway, go check it out, rtxaustin.com. Bye. All right, bye.